Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello again and uh, welcome back for our next session to Podrigo Tuma, who began our day so beautifully. Uh, it wouldn't be a Church Times event without Podrig and uh he, you may have come across um, his poetry podcast, which is astonishingly good. If you haven't, please go and look for Poetry Unbound, which is uh, broadcast by the On Being Studios, uh, short meditations um, on poems, which have been downloaded, and that's an astonishing, three million times. And uh, Podrig uh, is working on a PhD on prayer and poetry and uh, we look forward to uh, I hope a wealth of writing that will come out of that. Uh, Podrig's latest book Borders and Belongings um, is a poetic theological powerful reflection on the the story of Ruth and its resonance for our times. Uh, but I think for the next session you may need to um, hold on to your hats. Uh, Helen's, uh, Helen drew out that phrase from Herbert, killings and quickenings, which hints at the, the power of poetry. And in Podrick's session, um, I think we're going to hear about poetry's disruptive as well as its consoling power. So welcome, Podrick. Thanks very much, Christine, and thank you to everybody for being here. I always love doing events with Canterbury, and I'm thrilled to be part of this today. I have a quiet voice, I know, so you might want to turn up your um, volume if you're experiencing me to be low. I'll try to speak as loud as I can without losing my voice. So this session is called Saved by the Sonnet, and I thought we'd have a little opportunity to talk about the sonnet. Sonnet meaning a little song or a little sound. Um, you know, often it's 11 lines or often it's 14 lines long, but over the centuries of the sonnet, it's been anywhere from 11 to 17 lines long. Contemporary versions of the sonnet that go beyond or come in under 14 lines aren't a modern invention. It's actually a return to an older style to have sonnets of that different lengths. Um, Petrarch, of course, um, the Italian, was interested in a certain form of sonnet with rhyming sequences. And then Spencer and Shakespeare also brought sonnets into English language. One of the things that sonnets re regularly do is to turn on themselves, is to have a little what's called a volta, a little turn. Volta meaning coming from the same way that we speak about revolution or revolver or revolt. The whole idea is that a sonnet is a small meditation on something that's twisting on itself, looking at itself again, offering perhaps a new gaze, a new point of view, sometimes saying this instead of that. Um, other times, though, saying both of these, troubling the idea of the singular. Sometimes a sonnet starts off by saying this is true, and then there's the turn, and by the end it's saying, yeah, but this is true too. And I think I, the sonnet is doing what I hope the Today programme on Radio 4 would do, which is to bring complexity to the, the thing that you're considering, rather than just saying, this is ridiculous, here's the better way. I hope that the sonnet is often twisting in a way where you see the possibility of manoeuvrability and the complexity that, that comes with that. 
Um, Mimi Calvati is a brilliant um, contemporary sonnet writer in the Petrarchan form. She's got a great book with Carcanet called Afterwardness, if you're interested in reading some of the most extraordinary contemporary issued sonnets using an old, old form. My sonnets are all 14 lines long um, and I'll be reading a number of sonnets today. And I suppose I, I'm interested really in what, what Yeats called the Irish mode, where it's not iambic pentameter, I wandered lonely as a cloud, um, but it's also not strict rhyming form. I'm interested in the way that acoustic and sonic echoes of something can be carried through, maybe in the same way that mimics the echoes of conversation, the way that people with an accent or with a particularity or speaking in a local language have an acoustic echo of themselves. That for me is what's particularly interesting. I, I was thinking about that in preparation for today, and I think maybe I'm interested in sonnets and in the, interested in the Irish mode in poetry in the same way that I'm interested in it in religion. Uh, I like the language of religion, and I certainly like the words. I'm not entirely sure of the form and the strict form. Um, so I found my way into sonnets perhaps the same way I found my way into and worming around in religion. I have three kind of categories of sonnets we're going to look at today. Jesus sonnets, which do what they say on the tin. Deadly sonnets, which also do what they say on the tin. And then sonnets looking at masculinities. Um, I should offer you a content warning, really, just to let you know that throughout these sonnets, there's mentions of all kinds of human experiences. Um, the love of and rejection of religion, um, the devil and exorcisms and homophobia. Um, there's mention of trauma held in the body. Um, the reaching out for love and there's mention of friends who love each other and friends who hate each other and there's grief and sex as well so just so you know some of the things that will be coming up in this exploration of sonnets so here's an opening one called here is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world a jewish friend of mine um, was telling me that he was utterly uninterested in the christian gospels as writing about a jewish character because he said that they fail one of the first tests of jewish writing which is to pre present um, all sides of the pain and complexity and wrongdoing of the hero of a, of a jewish narrative he said jesus is far too perfect and so this sonnet was a response to that because i loved what he did by opening that idea up here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You weren't that perfect, weren't lamb pure or cocksure with certainty. You weren't as innocent as you're made out to be. You knew people, you knew power games, knew that the main aim of ambition is ambition. You knew the names of other people's fears because you had plenty of your own. You knew the touch of a friend was not dependent on their cleanliness and you knew this because you knew need, knew the way that story bleeds through actions of a day and how shame makes us play parts that are beneath us. You are beneath us and above us in the song we sang as children. You are in the piss and blood. You are spit mixed with mud. You are the rotting hand of God waiting for a hand to hold. You're not gold. You're rock cracked open. I've been interested for a long time in the devil, perhaps um, 
for all kinds of reasons. When I was nine, I begged my parents for a Bible. And the first thing I, got, I did when I got this children's Bible, which I still have, was to see if it had pictures of the devil. And indeed it did. It was... Um, it was uh, the devil was sky blue with a kind of a long spiked tail and the, the legs of a goat and flashing red eyes. Um, and so here is a poem about the devil where we realize or where I suppose I'm trying to realize that that's not the devil. Joseph Brodsky was, you know, the Russian exiled poet living in the United States, was teaching a class in New York City. A friend of mine was in the class. And he said to the class, you Americans, you think evil is going to come stomping in in big boots, announcing itself as evil. And he said, evil comes in the language. And when I think of Jesus of Nazareth and the engagements with the devil and the Christian texts, I think mostly he was engaging with a shadow side of himself. Maybe that's just what I do when I engage with the devil. So here's a poem called Wild. Because you too struggled... You went into the wild with nothing to shield you from the light. You learned to shade your eyes from the sun. You sweated in your sleep in the heat of the day. You made up stories to waste time and to keep the fear away. It didn't work. You wrestled with a devil more subtle than the one you'd read about. He didn't lurk in the corner of your cave or scream at you with a night blue mouth. He didn't roast you or launch himself out at you, all bat wings and hooves. He was always with you, but you didn't see that till the end. You'd been worrying about food and flight and fancy and how to be who you were. You'd been worrying about prayer and the way a man should care for his country when his country's a plaything for a despot. You'd been worrying about thirst and endings. You feared death, not fear, but both made you feel like a failure. One brutal, the other goes on forever. Just like you and the devil I see through you. I recently wrote um, a crown of sonnets under a new um, imagination of the Stations of the Cross. And I suppose I wanted to think about the name of Jesus as some kind of blank canvas um, for the every person. And so here is a sonnet called Jesus Considers Pronouns. Jesus Considers Pronouns. The way he has never worked for you. She neither. The way they sounds plural, and that's just how you like it. The way them makes you feel like you belong. The way there can be possessed, and you've never felt like anything you've owned would fit. The way you like conjugating yourselves in the first and the second and the many. The way we are legion makes sense in a way that nothing else makes sense. The way you breathe now that your plurals are made personal. The way you are the singular and the slew. And the word slew there at the end of that sonnet um, can mean obviously the past tense of slay. 
but it can also mean a crowd. And in the context of the word slew, meaning crowd, that's a meaning that's come into English from Irish. The word in Irish for group or crowd or gathering is slua, S-L-U-A. And so the English word slew, meaning a crowd, has come into English um, from the Irish language. So um, here's another um, here's another sonnet imagining Jesus as a name for the every person. It's called Jesus Phones the Samaritans. And all of these questions are taken from the training that Samaritans are giving, given when they are being trained to pick up the phone to answer that extraordinary helpline. Jesus Phones the Samaritans. Samaritans, how can I help? Of course, I'm happy to talk. What name can I call you? You don't need to say anything. That's quite all right. I'm in no rush. I'm just a set of ears for you. It might help if you tell me what's happening. But even if you don't, that's okay. You're welcome to tell me more. What will you do after you hang up? I'm not here to tell you what to do. Are you feeling suicidal? You can call us any time, night or day. Yes, I'm still here. And here's a sonnet called Jesus Fears, and I'll move on to deadly sonnets in a while. Jesus Fears. It's hard being frightened all the time. You see a tree and imagine it spells death. You select a leader totally expecting he'll reject you. You spot a guard and know the only way he'd touch you is to torture you. Even friends, even ones you wrapped your arms around, even ones you did your best to love, them too. What do you do when you're abandoned? You return to songs you sang at school. There is a green hill far away. Um, when I was uh, 18 and 19, I was put through some exorcisms and reparative therapy for getting rid of the gay devils in me or the, the gay broken parts in me. And uh, I, I mean, I suppose uh, after the initial burst of all of that and those two years, which was terrible, um, I, I suppose I wanted to get as far away from those experiences as possible. And it wasn't until over 20 years later when I thought, I should start to think about these through the lens of poetry. And I needed the form of time. I needed 20 years. And I think I also needed the form of sonnet for me in these, because sonnet in a certain sense asks a certain curiosity. The form of 14 lines with a volta that I was interested in was inviting a certain way of looking. Um, it imposes a certain editing um, you know, if I wanted to go on to 17 lines, I had to cut them back then. 
And so for me, it, it gave a container, a psychological container on a page with all kinds of blank space around the page where the, the unsaid could be left unsaid, just hanging there in the unseen. So here's a few sonnets. Some of them are pretty brutal, but they're true. The first, I went through three exorcisms and the first exorcist was from the country of America, which is why America is mentioned here. So I do like America, mostly. Not in this context, though. The Exorcism, Part 1 I wished you weren't American. I wish you didn't see intrinsic evil in me. I wish you hadn't dragged my secret from me. Now I know you knew already. Someone squealed. I wish you didn't put your hands on me while you were screaming at the devils in me. All my homosexualities. I wish you'd never gathered people round, instructing them to pray in tongues or read from revelations or chant Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I wish you'd shut up and I repeated Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I wish he'd answered. I wished you dead. And I was frightened at the violence in me and the nest of demons in me. I wondered where they lived. In my semen? In the dreams I had of being kissed? Why did they breed in me? My God, my exorcist. Here's a sonnet about the second exorcism. The way to break a man is to make him hate himself. So I found myself at doorways, at the top of seven steps where my exercisers waited, being forgiven by a priest who thrust his crotch into my face, shaking at the entrance of a place I was too chaste to enter. And now this empty room. Divide and conquer works for countries. People too. The exercisers said my sexuality would change if I claimed all my authority in Jesus, a prize for true believers. So they emptied out a room where I could cast out all my devils by myself, till what's inside of you's outside of you. I locked the door. Prayed harder than I'd prayed before, stayed an hour. When I came out unfree, they said I was beyond their powers. But they'd heard about a man who knew psychology. A trusted Christian man who'd cure me. He'd make me, truly, finally, manly. These are all part of a sequence called Seven Deadly Sonnets. And this is the last of the Seven Deadly Sonnets that I'll read. This um, sonnet is kind of written as an echo playfully, really. Um, and I think I needed the play because I was so angry. Um, it's written playfully after Shakespeare's sonnet 130, which lots of people learned at school. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. It's a magnificent sonnet. And so this poem is called Volta. And it's written in response to that. Sonnet 130 by Shakespeare. My exerciser's eyes were nothing like the sun. They had no fire. 
If twisted be the language bad priests speak, his tongue was like a lyre, sweeter than the Eucharist. If hate be harsh, why then his actions felt more tender than a father's. I have heard the furious from the pulpit. His work was quiet as abuse. I loved the promises he made. They wound around my heart with knots of wonder. I have heard of charlatans who charge. His rates were reasonable and his burden subtle. I swear he would have paid me for my custom. Some terrorise he Christianized, and by Christ I swear his heaven rhymed with hell. But he'll claw his way to glory, me as well. I kind of had wanted to write a revenge sonnet, if that's such a thing, about the particular person I was talking about here. I've kind of combined two people, I suppose, but there was one in particular who was quite invidious and insidious and other things that rhyme with that. And um, the sonnet wouldn't let me. And for me, the volta in this sonnet comes while I'm not, while I don't really believe in a heaven. Um, I wanted to imagine heaven in this sonnet. He'll claw his way to glory. But the volta for me comes in those last three lines to think if there is a glory, well, then I'll be there too. And that's the revenge in the poem. Um, I'm looking at the time. I've got about five minutes, so I'll read 20 more. <laughs> Here's a little sonnet called Who for Us Men and for Our Salvation. There's a whole bunch of churches that won't allow women to preach, but that <laughs> invite me, a gay man, to preach, which I think is hilarious. And I say no. Um, so this sonnet is written for Sarah Williamson and Philippa Jordan, two extraordinary Belfast-based theologians who have um, been enculturated in a culture that will not um, honour their intellect or their language or their insight or their intelligence because of a poor reading of the question of gender and power. Who for us men and for our salvation? You drink whiskey during poker nights, wear shirts your granddad wore, display the ink that's on your unshaved chest and sign your texts to me with X's. You drink coffee from a little glass after early morning yoga class. You podcast authenticity and live in parts of the city that others have disdained. You disdain disdain. You oil your beard. You wear 1930s shoes bought for a small fortune in a place you say your granddad would have loved. Like him, you believe a woman's place is not behind the pulpit. Let her lecture in literature. Let her explore the stars. Let her drink. Let her work. But do not let her speak the verb of God in public. Let her mostly be. Um, in Irish, if you're at a religious service and you know the way they'd say, um, this is the word of the Lord. Um, in Irish, you say, which means this is the verb of God. So that's where that last line, um, the verb of God, comes from, if you're interested in where that came. Here's a sonnet after um, these, these last ones are sonnets really exploring the practices of masculinities 
Um, here's a sonnet about Jerry Reynolds, an extraordinary man from County Limerick, a farming man with big farming hands that were as soft as a baby's. He'd spent his whole life as a priest and as a writer and as a peacemaker. He was a dreamer at his funeral when he was 80. Um, they, um, his, the, his confreres and the Redemptorist congregation of priests said, Jerry Reynolds with a man, was a man with both his feet firmly planted in midair. And he had a dream, really, that people were capable of having awful conversations with each other. Um, if he ever met you, he'd shake your hand and hang on to your hand while he asked you about your family and where you were from and about the land where you were from, um, whether it was farming land or city and what you could see were there trees. He was interested in all those kinds of things. And during the great silence of their morning prayer in the Redemptorists, he was always reciting the poem that he was learning off every week. And he learned a new poem every week. And you could always say to him, what's the poem this week? And if it was Thursday or Friday, he'd have most of it off by heart. And so here's a poem called Parlour in honour of him. And kindly Malcolm Guite included this in a collection of, um, of elegies. Uh, so I was really pleased that Malcolm included this there. Jerry was a great man for form. So this poem does pick up some of the imagery of the early Genesis poem about creation of morning and evening. parlor. The first day I met you, you asked questions in the parlor for an hour. Our history started then and the rest is story and it's evening now you're gone and I am full of morning. You held onto everybody's hands with your big hands, soft skin, warm and some kind of kind light in your eyes. Some small poem always hovering on your lips, always anxious that righteousness and peace could kiss, always moved to the truest truth that love can be woven into all of this, all of this. And even though it's still the evening and I'll be grieving for a while, the morning light you lit is burning like a fire all around, all around. I finish with a sonnet called Entertaining Angels. Um, I think maybe having been too zealous and too involved in religion as a younger man, I suppose I'm automatically distrustful of any mechanism that proposes certitude. Um, I'm interested in exploration and not really the imagination of a singular destination. And so I met a man a number of years ago who was certain that the stars and um, numbers and numerology and astrology could give all kinds of certitudes. So here is a, a sonnet about that, entertaining angels. I'll finish with this and thank you for your kind time. and Thank you to all the other presenters and to um, Canterbury Press and the folks at Hames Ancient and Modern for the, the joy of being part of this publishing family and also for the opportunity to be with you today. Entertaining angels. He counted me calculating sums with the numbers of my birth date on his phone, told me I was unusual, told me something about my conflict and my calm, something about my need to make things out of nothing, something about how now is no time for making decisions, Mercury rising, listen, said I was all rage and rest, and that if I keep hating myself, I'll just end up as hate myself. 
and I know that prophecies of universal truths are good for nothing. But damn, he hit me between the eyes. And all this morning, I couldn't wipe my smile because after he said, you're terrible at taking truths, even though you're good at telling them, he laughed at everything he said, winked, rolled over, called me bro, said, show me what's underneath those clothes. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.